Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen on what Kevin and I call Editorial Tuesday, but to you it's just Tuesday. It is fairly remarkable that we're doing one today. Normally we're scurrying around like little worker bees trying to get the magazine out. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're trying to keep up with the daily schedule here uh, of getting one out uh, every day, although sometimes it does get a little difficult with both you and I traveling uh, as much as we do and uh, and all that. But yeah, it's... Uh, I figure we're going to have this conversation anyway, may as well record it, that the whole idea behind these podcasts is that we sit here and talk for 25 minutes every day anyway about the news and what's in the magazine. So, weather report? Well, it's uh, a mix, really. It's uh, some blue sky, some cloud. The sun is not pushing through as I would like it to, although it is nice and warm. It was very nice yesterday. A pleasant day, indeed it was. Absolutely. Um, so today is uh, is middling, not quite your English oppressive white sky, but not Southern California either. No. And for once, we've managed to start a podcast without police sirens in the background. Well, give it time. Give it time. <laughs> um, you know, I live close to the main uh, police station in New York. You uh, do. One police plaza. And uh, fortunately, I'm high up enough that I don't hear the sirens that often, but uh, every now and then I'm watching television or something, and I can't quite tell if it's if the sirens are unjustified or the wire, if they're actually uh, outside my uh, outside my window. Well, in a clumsy and brutish segue, never. You have been looking at the 60th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Uh, so that comes up, I guess, on the 17th. So here toward the end of the week, or maybe early next week. It'll be the 60th anniversary of that decision, and so, as you know, I don't have much interest in looking at things from a legal perspective, uh, both because that's not my area of expertise and also because I, in some ways, doubt its validity as a, uh, as a, a model of interpretation. I was about to say, let's not relitigate this, which would have been, a, <laughs> would have been an unfortunate turn of phrase. Uh, it's a great turn of phrase. It's a great turn of phrase. You have to make a federal case out of it. <laughs> but um, anyway, so the question I'm asking, though, is uh, you know, Brown contains within it certain promises, uh, implicit promises about what's going to happen if we use the federal government to forcibly desegregate the schools, uh, achieve some level of racial integration uh, that's going to have certain effects. You know, Brown is famous and famously criticized for containing a great deal of sociology, uh, relying upon the work of various sociologists who argued that segregation imposed um, psychological harms on African Americans and that if we integrated the schools, these things would disappear. So uh, the question I, I'm really looking at for the week, or for tomorrow morning, I guess, is uh, did any of this happen? And uh, one of the reasons that I have some skepticism about looking at things from a legal point of view is that you take a decision like Brown, which is a sweeping, you know, groundbreaking, epic-making decision, and nothing happened afterward. Uh, almost nothing happened afterward. If you look at segregation in American schools, public schools today, not much different from where it was uh, during Brown. Right now, something on the order of 80-something percent of African-American students uh, attend schools that are effectively segregated. About 40% of them uh, attend schools that are 90 or 95 percent African-American. The educational outcomes uh, for black and also Latino students, but more pronouncedly for black students, still 60 years later lag far, far behind uh, where white students are. Um, 
So a lot of the benefits that we had hoped to gain from this, whether you think Brown was a good decision or a bad decision, legally speaking, I think in terms of principles, it's the right principle, obviously. Uh, we haven't we haven't desegregated the schools, even though we've got this law that says you're supposed to be desegregated. We haven't done much of anything to change the gap in educational outcomes between African-American students and others. So whatever it's going to take to change that in society, assuming it's a changeable thing, it's not having a Supreme Court decision and then a Civil Rights Act of 1964 and some later enabling legislation to make that happen. So it may have had some social consequences. I could tell by the look on your face that's what you want to ask about. No, it isn't. But, it um, isn't. but in terms of real educational outcomes and in terms of what the composition of the schools actually looks like, things are not as radically different today as one would assume from uh, the content of that decision. Now, the reason I'm looking at you like that is that in some regards, and I hope you'll forgive the way I'm going to put this, but mm. in some regards you sound a little bit like a progressive in that conservatives do care deeply about the principle and the, and the legal principle here in, in that it really matters whether a school is segregated because the law says it has to be or segregated because it has been before or because those using it choose to segregate it. I mean, for example, if you were to pass a law in certain parts, parts of Alabama or Tennessee or Louisiana saying you all have to go out and buy a shotgun. Nothing would change at all. Right. <laughs> but we would oppose the mandate sure. because we want the status quo to have been arrived at voluntarily. And so Brown is hugely important insofar as it says, no, the state cannot force or require the segregation of schools and other government institutions. But if there hasn't been radical change in 60 years, isn't that a separate question? Well, it is a separate question, sure. And I, I, I agree with you uh, to the extent that, yeah, I, I think it matters what our legal processes look like and what the laws actually say, because that is an expression at least of, you know, at some level of our principles. But there's a great deal of you know philosophical real estate between that and the proposition I'm getting at, which is that you can change the laws all day, and it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. Uh, reality doesn't follow politics necessarily. For the same reason, you can pass a law saying that Rocky Road ice cream doesn't make you fat. Um, sure. Doesn't matter what the law says; it's still going to. So, you know, the problem where we are right now, and to some extent, the problem where we were in the 1960s, um, isn't so much what the law says or what the public policy says, but what the economic and social realities are on the ground. And, you know, and this is so typical of the way, you know, politics goes about trying to solve these problems. When I was growing up in uh, Texas in the 70s and 80s, my uh, home school district in Lubbock was under a um, federal desegregation order, which meant that we had to have uh, busing of students in order to uh, produce, at least in the third grade, a statistically uh, measurable desegregation. So the way that worked was, you know, white kids from one side of town were bused to a different school in a predominantly African-American and Latino neighborhood, and kids from that school were bussed over to my school over in the largely white side of town. And this went on for just one year in everyone's lives. So in third grade, you would attend a different school than you went to. Otherwise, purely for reasons of, uh, of making something come out statistically the way that the, the law says it has to. But the ironic thing about that, and the funny thing, is I recall from my time at Raul C. Martin Elementary School in East Lubbock, which I don't think exists anymore, 
uh, was that the segregation was simply replicated within the school. Uh, you know, the students, of course, were uh, socially inclined to stick together with people who were racially similar, not so much because I think of reasons of race, but because we knew them already, because we'd gone to second grade with them in first grade, whereas we didn't know people at the new school we were being sent to. And, um, you know, the, the real outcome of that was just like having sort of a weird long summer camp where you get, you know, put in a different school for two semesters. You have a different environment and uh, a different set of experiences, and then everyone goes back to where they were and sort of forget about it. And when it comes to busing, you always hear about, um, you hear a lot of stories of, of white kids complaining about being sent to uh, largely minority schools. And while I can understand for maybe a third grader, that might be, um, you know, traumatic just to be sent to a different school and to be sent to a radically different environment. And if you thought I sounded like a progressive before, I'll certainly sound like a progressive here, which is that it had to be much more traumatic, I would think, for the black and Latino kids being sent to a predominantly white school simply because um, even in a, in a place like, like Lubbock, which is you know heavily uh, Mexican-American, you still have a fairly white structure of power and authority there and uh, a sense that um, I don't think that white kids really felt probably under siege, even if they're in a largely black school, the way that black kids probably did being sent to a predominantly white school. Now, I may be wrong about that. I can't get inside the heads of African-American third graders in 1980 or whenever this was, 1981 maybe. But um, it seems to me likely that that was the case. So, 60 years later, and we still have all of these issues. Yeah. You and I probably disagree, as we did earlier, on how much we expected a Supreme Court decision to change the status quo beyond the legal principle. But clearly, if you're right, and not much has changed, then all of the congressional and local and cultural attempts have been ineffective. Well, so uh, what yeah, do we do? Well, um, you can probably anticipate the argument I'm going to make here. You know, Roe v. Wade changed actual abortion practices in a radical way that Brown didn't change educational practice. And the grisly but true answer for that is because you pay for abortions. There's a market for abortions out there. And once that service became legal, uh, it was really in the realm of our most effective institution, which is the free market, to uh, deliver that. So you're in this weird paradoxical situation where if you're, um, if you're a black family living in a largely black neighborhood, in a largely black city, and you've got $50,000 to buy a car with, you get the same car as if you're a white family in a white neighborhood in a white city. Anybody will sell you a car for the same price. You know, you get your, your E-Class Mercedes or whatever it costs. That's a bit more than 50000 I guess. But, um, you know, if you're in the Camry market, if you're in the Lamborghini market, it doesn't matter what your background is, where you live, who you are, what color your skin is. Uh, we deliver this service to people the same way, and it's true of every other product. And, you know, abortions, unfortunately, are a product. I hate to, uh, I hate to acknowledge the fact that that's true, but they're out there. Yeah, service. they are. But whether it's, you know, green felt hats like the one sitting on my desk, or telephones, or Perrier water, or cars, or the microphone we use to record this podcast, markets do a pretty good job of delivering things to people at whatever price point. Uh, indiscriminately. I mean, they do discriminate, but they discriminate according to how much money you have to spend. Uh, you know, no one's going to tell Jay-Z 
you can't live here in this neighborhood or buy this yacht or this house because you're black. Uh, but we do essentially do that with education still because education isn't delivered through markets, it's delivered through government, it's delivered through these little cartels and monopolies. And so you're dependent on politics. And the, you know, the, what, not the only problem, but one of the main problems that African American students face is that they live in neighborhoods that are predominantly African American and predominantly poor. Uh, neighborhoods like that don't have the ability to command out of the political structure better goods and services. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, not very well off at all, but I had the great benefit of going to school with people who were, you know, fairly wealthy and connected. So I ended up getting a pretty good public education because my classmates' parents were doctors and lawyers and professors and things like that. But if you're, you know, living in a bad neighborhood in North Philadelphia, it's not going to be the case. So, um, it's true to some extent that segregation is in the schools is, is still a, a result of segregation at the neighborhood level, but there are easy ways around that. You know, we don't sell cars according to what neighborhood you live in, or iPhones, or anything else, or subscriptions to National Review. So I, I don't disagree with any of that as a policy prescription. I would just say one thing, though, which is that there's another reason that Roe and Brown versus Board are so different in their consequences, and that is that Rose struck down the government's ability to ban something, which when there are bans in place, instantly changes the landscape, in much the same way as DC versus Heller and the way that it's been applied has changed the landscape in this country, because it immediately says to the government, that law has to change, which means this person can do that. Same with Citizens United, same with the recent decision, McCutcheon, on individual contributions. Uh, the plaintiff in that case one day had an aggregate limit on what he could contribute and the next day he didn't and so immediately people in his position started to to change their behavior because there was a real demand. Didn't Brown do the same thing? No because what Brown did was to say the state can no longer mandate the arrangement that is in place but there's nothing. But isn't that just another way of saying they can't ban integrated schools? No, because you can have a heavily segregated school by accident in that if you go to a extremely black or extremely white area, if you're in Maine, for example. The whitest state in the union. Yeah, and New Hampshire is 97% and Vermont is 97% white. Uh, not, not, you know, 97% non-black, <laughs> 97% right. white. Then, you, you know, you're going to have schools, for example, that don't change. Now, I understand there were various laws post-Brown that uh, sought to change the way in which schools operated, and you saw them in Texas. And in fact, it's funny when you look back at elections in you know, 1968, 1972, even 1976, how big an issue this was. It's funny for someone like me, who not only was, was born in 1984, but moved here in 2011 and has just never heard this this controversy. But I would just say that is one of the differences with Brown is that, you know, overnight what changed was that it could no longer be mandatory, but it doesn't change the social landscape instantly um, because it, it, it doesn't do the same thing. Now, you were talking about it's remarkable how big an issue it was. One of the things that's remarkable to me is how little National Review had to say about this at the time. You know, I've been going back both for this story and for some other stuff I'm working on reading our issues from the 1950s onward. And of course, Brown was 54, National Review didn't start publishing until 55, but it you know, later revisited the issue on occasion. And then in 64, when the Civil Rights Act is being debated, you know, National Review has some stuff to say about that as well. 
um, mostly not enthusiastic, although um, some people were more so than others. But what's really remarkable uh, about National Review in the 1950s and 1960s is how little it had to say in general on the subject of desegregation in the schools, the civil rights movement, uh, civil rights legislation. I mean, it's in there. It's in the magazine. But there are probably, you know, nine words on the Vietnam War for every word there is on things like that. Um, I don't know if that was a, just an editorial eccentricity of the time. I know that the magazine was in some points divided on what we should think about that and how we should go about writing about it. But it's, it's remarkable uh, for its absence. We'll have, you know, pages of, you know, who killed Diem and why. And then you know one paragraph on a, a civil rights act. It's uh, it's kind of odd. It is a difficult issue for conservatives and libertarians, especially perhaps now when the word racist is so liberally thrown around. The civil rights act emphasis on liberally. Sure, <laughs> the civil rights act. You might say it's progressively getting worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. you know, the the civil rights act was a departure from the norms of American government and the role of the federal government within American society. Now, you always point out, and you're absolutely right, that there is nothing that is similar in American history to the experience of African Americans, not least because they tended to be brought over as slaves, then were legally barred from citizenship, then went through a bloody civil war, then went through segregation and still suffered hugely from the consequences of that poverty, educational outcomes, crime, and so on. And so one can very easily make the case that it was necessary because the problem was so big. But as a rule, the ideas inherent in the Civil Rights Act are not ones that certainly libertarians like. I mean, certainly the preempting of private employment, the preempting of private businesses, the micromanagement of the states at the federal level. You know, these are these are intellectually and philosophically difficult, and quite rightly sure. for libertarians. And the and the general argument, and the convincing argument, I think, is, you know, yes, these are undesirable as a rule, but as we don't really like wars either, but when you have to fight the Japanese Empire or Nazi Germany, you have to do things that libertarians don't like and that you would never do in peacetime. Yeah, Lino, uh, so the Lino 1960s, a great legal scholar. I'm sorry, I mean to No, so the 1960s, uh, you know, led to that. And the big question, of course, uh, for for anyone going forward, is to what extent is the Civil Rights Act and some of the principles in it still necessary? Yeah. Lino Gralia, a great legal scholar from the University of Texas, um, has made an argument, and I'm probably not going to do his subtlety justice here, but his argument said as a political matter, the idea that questions of race are going to be settled at the federal rather than the state level is reality that comes not from any election or law that was passed, but from Gettysburg, essentially, that, you know, we had a war over this that made it a federal issue. The post-Civil War amendments uh, brought that to the federal level. And an argument that I've heard a few times, and I'm not sure if this is Grawley or not, so I don't want to attribute it to him, but um, 
some people's main complaint with you know Brown and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the order that they came in. Um, that you had this court decision, which was legally speaking probably not justified, and a piece of legislation that may not have been a good piece of legislation, but probably wasn't flatly unconstitutional either. And that what you really should have had was congressional action, you know, followed up by court action when the southern states refused to comply, which is what they did, of course, after Brown, rather than the other way around. There were 10 years that separated them, I think. Yes, 54 to 64. Are you saying you don't think Brown is legally justified? Uh, I'm not sure that it is. I think that, um, and again, I'm not a, a legalist or a legal scholar, but um, you know, Goldwater's argument against Brown was simply that there's nothing in the Constitution that gives the federal government the right to regulate uh, local educational arrangements. And, um, you know, I tend to take a pretty narrow and restrictive reading of things. So I think it's certainly ethically and morally justified, but I don't think Brown was necessarily a, a legally justified uh, decision. Um, and that's, you know, gets to what we were talking about before, which is that uh, at some point, you know, that particular question, the question of what is the status and role of African Americans in American life, uh, was something that was just going to have to be dealt with. It was going to have to be dealt with at the national level. And it would have been far better if it had been dealt with through Congress rather than through um, a, a traumatic and uh, possibly unjustified court decision. But uh, the fact is it wasn't. You know, uh, Senator Taft, Mr. Conservative as he was known, tried to introduce a sweeping civil rights bill in 1946 which was shot down by labor unions, the NAACP, and a few other people who didn't like uh, its reach it would have over organized labor because it was primarily focused on employment discrimination. And then some on the left and the NAACP and groups like that didn't want to uh, support it because they thought they could get a better deal in a couple of years. turns out it was, it was quite a while. It would have been far better, I think, for the country if we dealt with it that way, if we dealt with it legislatively. Of course, it would have been far better also if the states that were particularly recalcitrant on this stuff had seen the error of their ways and uh, and uh, you know grown up and done the right thing but unfortunately that isn't what happened so it's easy to you know in retrospect say this should have happened and that should have happened but you know what happened is what happened um, whether all this stuff you know makes sense in the larger constitutional and legal framework I will leave to people who uh, know more about this than I do but I think in terms of practical consequences you know, have we really made much progress in terms of integrating African Americans into American community life? I think our progress has not been terribly impressive on that. I mean, in some ways it has. I mean, socially it certainly has in many ways. Um, you know, being an open racist in public is just, you know, makes you a social pariah now. Cost you your basketball team, uh, cost you, you know, whatever. And that stuff's all good, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's good that we have, you know, changed our opinions on that. It's good that, you know, most businesses will not uh, discriminate in hiring. Uh, they won't discriminate according to who wants to be their customer, that sort of thing. And to the extent that we're working in markets and in the free economy to deliver that sort of thing, those, those institutions do pretty well. They don't do perfectly, uh, but they do pretty well. But where we really lag is in the, you know, the political institutions of which the public schools are one of the most important ones. Yes, although there's not much by way of enthusiasm for reform 
in the party that the majority of African Americans, the vast majority of African Americans vote for, and in some regards, this is an area of ossification and stasis, because all of the movement, for better or for worse, all of the movement on the question of education and education reform uh, is coming from the right. And indeed, there is this unholy alliance between teachers' unions and government employees and minorities. Uh, and insofar as the former is more powerful than the latter, which seems to be the case, the latter gets screwed. Yeah, and that's one of the unfortunate things about where we are politically as a country is that you know on the right, we're having a lot of interesting conversations about you know the role of family in economic outcomes and how we could possibly reform schools and things like that. But it's a conversation that largely doesn't include African Americans because they're not politically where we are. Uh, there aren't very many in the Republican Party. There aren't very many who are associated with the conservative movement. There aren't that many who are reading National Review. Um, so, I mean, it's not you know exclusively a conversation of, of upper middle class white people among other upper middle class white people, but it's certainly overwhelmingly that. You know, a lot of law school graduates, uh, a lot of that sort of thing. So one of the things conservatives, I think, need to do, and that we haven't been particularly good at, is, you know, taking this conversation into those communities. Um, you know, the Republican Party, of course, is terrible at this. You know, they'll show up every election cycle, and we'll have someone give some bad speeches in Spanish, and uh, rather than, you know, go out and talk to these sort of non-white, non-traditional Republican mm. voters about things that actually deeply interest them. You know, um, I, I think I would just say I think ahead, they please. have to. Republicans are going to have to recognize that they're just going to have to walk in to a hail of bullets yeah. when they do this, because yes, it is deeply unfair that the left simultaneously taunts conservatives for not going out there and going into inner cities and talking to minorities. And whenever they do it, either says they're racist, as in the case of Paul Ryan, or in the case of Tim Scott, who is black himself, says he's just shopping for anecdotes, was the, right. was the way that the Washington Post put it. So yes, that is deeply unfair, but this is politics. And you know the Democratic Party is not set up to help Republicans. It's set up to cast <laughs> Republicans as the enemy. So, you know, more than Paul Ryan and Tim Scott need to stand up, go and talk to people, be booed, be heckled, be shouted at, be called all sorts of names. Because after a while, it does become very difficult to say to somebody who's spent week after week after week trying to reach out to communities that don't normally vote for them and like their ideas, it becomes very difficult to say, well, you're a racist. Right, yeah. Well, I think one thing the Republicans, you know, institutionally don't do very well, and if I had offered them a little advice, and you know, Republicans don't pay me to offer them advice, but here's a, here's a free one, is, you know, when you're doing outreach to black and, and Hispanic communities, don't do it on Juneteenth or MLK Day or in some setting or context that says, hi, black people, we're right. Republicans, we're here to get your vote. <laughs> And uh, because, you know, they have other roles in society and as citizens than as members of, of racial and ethnic minorities. Um, they care about their kids' education the same way white people do. They care about the economy and jobs and growth and crime and all the rest of the stuff. And it would be good, I think, you know, to go into those communities and make the case uh, for our policies and our positions. 
but without doing it in this way that you know is sort of transparently uh, and patronizingly you know we need to get our numbers up in in these neighborhoods a little bit so we can win the next election and I think that if they were a bit more serious and substantive about it and we're taking it on as a you know a long-term argument and conversation that's not about how are we going to do among Hispanic voters in 2016 can we get our numbers up among African Americans from 4% to 6.5% or wherever Republicans are then they would probably do better but um well, this comes back to where speaking, we... speaking, they don't do a very good job of that. Go ahead. No, and this comes back to where we started, really, which is my question of, well, what can we do about the failure, I think is what you're saying, of the last 60 years? And really, without being naive about this or saccharine about this, the really important question here is not, can the Republican Party win enough black voters to win the White House or to win both houses of Congress. The important question here is, can the Republican Party and the ideas that it carries do some good for a historically downtrodden group? And can that 60-year record of failure be turned around? Because there's no inherent virtue to Republicans winning elections. No, God. We've got plenty of contrary evidence for that proposition. Right. The reason that you and I believe what we believe is because we believe that it does better for everybody. Now, obviously, there are trade-offs. There's no utopian way of seeing the world. There's no great master plan in a vault somewhere that will make everybody happy. But we're not sitting here thinking well, what can I advocate that will make my life better? That's not a very nice way of looking at things. And economies and countries, you know, do need to consider everybody. And, uh, and conservatives on education, on economics, and civil society, genuinely, in my experience, believe that their policies are better for african-americans so that's what they're going for <laughs> yeah you know uh, ronald reagan famously said it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets credit for it yeah. and um you look at the poll numbers i mean they're mixed on on the issue but there is some evidence that african-american and hispanic communities are generally pretty favorable toward things like education reform uh vouchers as long as you don't call them vouchers uh you know opportunity scholarships and those sorts of things uh, if republicans didn't care about um, whether this would confer a lot of electoral advantage on them if they were able to, you know, cut some deals with traditional democratic interest groups to get that done, you could probably get some of that achieved and uh, enacted, and that would make an enormous difference in a lot of places. Uh, the problem and the challenge, of course, is that um, practically speaking, it's easiest to do that on a school district by school district basis. And the real problem in a lot of places like New York and Philadelphia and Cleveland is that um, you're not talking about bad schools within school districts, but totally failed school districts. So if you could get it on a regional or a state level, um, it would certainly probably be more effective. And I hope that uh, some of our education reformers will be out there pushing for that. And there must be around the edges certain opportunities for Republicans to achieve this at the state level, because certainly... New York, Philadelphia, and areas where there are a lot of poor minorities, they don't tend to have 
Republican governments. But Republicans are doing very well at the state and local level. Now, a lot of the southern states, for example, do have a lot of African-Americans, and they do have a lot of failed school districts. And so if the legislature of uh, Georgia or Mississippi or Louisiana went all out on this, and some of them have, then they could affect that change without having to argue with President Obama, without having to argue with the NEA, without having to get around the Department of Education. So it is a matter of priorities too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I guess in ending this, we could uh, make ourselves uh, a short list of all the predominantly African-American cities that Republicans are likely to win in the next election.